If you have a Bible with you, please open it to John chapter 20. Uh, We will soon be reading from verses 19 through 31. I hope that each one of you had a wonderful Merry Christmas. Uh, It is always kind of odd when Christmas falls in the latter half of the week because it seems like we're so much nearer Christmas now, but now it's too late to wish you a Merry Christmas because it's already happened. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping that you already had a wonderful Christmas and that as the Christmas season continues, uh, you will continue to enjoy the, uh, the time of year that we have. But this is no longer the time of feasting for Christmas. It is now the time of thinking about how much we feasted and how much we shouldn't have and being concerned about new things that are coming. So it is always a time to kind of take stock not only of the year that has happened, but of what is coming forward to us as we make resolutions, as some of us are prone to do sometimes simply thinking through how we would like to make the next year better. As we come to John 20, we find that the, the disciples are in something of that situation, only turned far, far greater up than what we experience. They're not just looking forward to a calendar turning over, but they are trying to grapple and wrestle with the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Last week, we saw as John records in John 20, four sort of resurrection appearances, as it were, for us. The first two of Jesus not appearing, in a sense, to John and Peter was important because that signified his resurrection. We talked about how Jesus provides us simple grace in one another. Oftentimes, we don't realize how much mercy Jesus shows us simply in the common working out of his people, as Peter was there simply to help John see the resurrection. We talked also about the severe mercy that he had for Mary who wanted nothing more than to hang on to her friend, to to be with Jesus and in his presence. Certainly we can understand that desire, but Jesus had better things in mind for her, saying, you cannot cling to me, that she might know that he is God on high. Today, we see the last of these two sort of vignettes as Christ will bring his disciples and bring Thomas to faith. It is good to remember, even as we go into this, that God's mercy is upon us. Those who have believed have experienced the mercy of God and the kindness of God in bringing us to faith. We know very well that we didn't do this. It is worth thinking through how it is that God led you to where you are. Some of you were raised in Christian homes, and so you were given the grace of having parents who believed and who led you to faith and instructed you in the faith. Others saw the mercy of God through other people, some through maybe extraordinary circumstances. It is worth remembering as we go into these verses how God has worked in our lives as well. But that is not the topic this morning. The topic is how God works in the lives of his disciples and of Thomas this morning. So let us go and read from John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, 
We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of our God. This morning, I would like to draw your attention first to the fact that Jesus provides strengthening mercy. Jesus provides strengthening mercy. The first of these two appearances has a number of interesting features in it, the first of which is the fact that John makes it very clear that these doors were locked. And what we might think is that those doors were locked primarily because he wanted to show us how afraid the disciples were of the Jews, that they might come busting through at any moment. But... Although they were afraid, and although they probably had good reason for being afraid, already the day had passed, no doubt, that to the rest of the disciples, just as it had to Peter and to John, the word had come back that the Lord was no longer in the tomb. Afraid, perhaps, that what happened to Jesus might happen to them. Perhaps even more afraid that they would be accused of having stolen the body of Jesus, that being a capital punishment. They had locked the doors. The most impressive thing about the locked doors is the fact that Jesus clearly ignored them. We don't know exactly how all of this happens, but it's safe to say that Jesus isn't being shown here to be some sort of magical lock picker, but he is capable somehow of overcoming physical barriers. There's something about his resurrection that means that he can manifest himself wherever he would choose to, however he would choose to. While his body was missing, So the body that he currently has, resurrected and perfected, is somehow related to his body that laid in the tomb. It is now somehow not the same. It is distinct and different. Our bodies cannot go through walls and doors, but Jesus somehow can. Paul explains something of this. As my wife had read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, we read a little bit earlier about that sort of putting on immortality. And Paul says this, Not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, 
there is also a spiritual body. Now, anybody who can tell me what precisely Paul means by spiritual body will get huge bonus points. I have no idea what he actually means by that, but I do know this. He means body, which means it's a corporeal body. You can touch it, you can feel it, it's there, it's real, its presence is manifested in a physical sense. But it also is far beyond any physical body that we might possibly know of. Jesus appears to them. If that's not enough, he then tells them to be and to have peace. The disciples are afraid, so obviously Jesus confers peace to them. And this in turn makes them glad. They see the Lord. He shows them his hands and his side, and they rejoice. They are filled with happiness. This is indeed the way that it should be. Jesus resurrected and powerful, ought to dispel any fears we have of the world and any anxieties and troubles that we have, knowing that our God and Savior has been resurrected from the grave. This is indeed what should mark the new age. The famous passage in Joel, which talks about the Spirit being poured out on all flesh, that God will one day have this sort of eschatological spirit come and be poured out on women and men, on old men, on young men, on all people who confess his name. This comes directly after. There's this passage about locusts coming and devouring everything, this army. And it's difficult, I think, for us to imagine how terrifying locusts would have been. Those millions of locusts descending on a field for us might mean higher wheat prices. It might mean that we struggle to get all of the food that we would like, but no doubt, I think, starvation's a long way off. But for the people in the first century, the people in the 19th century, locusts descending like this would have meant death. But it was a death that was months and excruciating months away. This passage in Joel, then, is about the destruction that God is going to bring. And yet, at the end of that passage, he says this, Fear not, O land, but be glad and rejoice. Do not fear, but be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before." The fear of punishment, the fear and the danger of of the wickedness of Israel coming upon them has been put aside, and God says you are no longer to fear but to rejoice. That is precisely what happens to the disciples. Fearing for their lives, they now rejoice in the presence of a resurrected Savior. These two things work in tandem. Jesus shows up in power, and that power, being for us, ought to dispel any fear we have. Therefore, Jesus gives them a commission. He says, even as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Not to do precisely what Jesus did, but to do the same kind of work, to usher in the kingdom. As Jesus has won victory over the death and over the grave, now it is the church's responsibility to go out and proclaim the kingdom of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel of good news. To empower them for this, he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. This is the first of two sort of challenging things in this passage. Is this the actual bequeathing of the Holy Spirit? Is this John's version of it as many people tend to think instead of what we get in the beginning of the book of Acts? Maybe John is here saying this is actually when it happened. 
It's hard to reconcile those two events. If this is the giving of the Holy Spirit, then there is a second giving of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, because this happens, as John writes it, the very day of the resurrection. Pentecost is 50 days later. It seems hard to reconcile the two. I don't think that it's an act of promise, but it's, or an act of provision of the Spirit, but more of an act of promise of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, I will provide for you the Holy Spirit. And what he is more signifying is not just that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, but that it is my Spirit, it is my breath as well. The Spirit comes not just from God the Father, but also from the Son. He is promising them this so that what happens in verse 23 might be true. And verse 23, also difficult. If you forgive any the sins, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is much like Matthew 16, 19, when Peter finally confesses rightly that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus tells Peter, in the ESV, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The Holman translation, I think, puts that a little bit better when it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. It's the same kind of idea present in John 20, 23. And I think that as John is supplementing the the other Gospels, he is looking directly at what Matthew said, and it's like, hey, let me, let me explain this to you a little bit more. It's not just about binding and loosing, but that is primarily about the forgiveness of sins. You'll notice that in Matthew, whatever has been bound has already been bound. So there's something of, of a reflection on earth of what has already happened in heaven. We have something of the same idea here. When you forgive... They are indeed forgiven. They are in a place of forgiveness. The fact that it's passive indicates that this forgiveness is not coming from the church. It is coming from God. I think that our Catholic friends get this particular passage wrong, as they probably do Matthew 16 as well. It is not the priesthood of the church that gives out forgiveness as they so choose. It is not up to the Pope to hand out forgiveness as he chooses but rather we reflect the heavenly reality of the forgiveness that is provided in the gospel. We put these two passages together, we get something like this. The power of the keys given to Peter and to the apostles is nothing less than the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Spirit is tied expressly to the preaching of the gospel. The Holy Spirit does not, refuses to, not because it can't, but because he refuses to work outside the preaching of the gospel. As Paul says in Romans 10, how can they believe without having heard and how can they hear without someone preaching? So as the word goes out in the church, the Holy Spirit works. Forgiveness is given. The Holy Spirit, if people are rightly brought into the kingdom through the right preaching of the word, it is because the church has preached the word rightly. It's because it has rightly proclaimed the gospel. The Holy Spirit has worked in it. The church then recognizes that work and speaks forgiveness to people. We can rightly look at people who confess and who have changed lives, who have experienced the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and say, the Lord has forgiven your sins. You can look at a brother or sister who comes to you and confesses their sin and rightly say to them, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. 
Not because you have the power to forgive, but because you know the gospel that has the power to forgive. Now, as we put all of that together, let's think through the power that Jesus had just provided these fearful disciples. They're afraid and they're cowering from the Jews. They're fearful that their fate might be the same as Jesus. They have no idea where they're going or what they're going to do. Yet on that very day, Jesus appears to them. He does so unexpectedly, behind locked doors, demonstrating his mastery and his power over all physical barriers. He bestows peace upon them. He gives them the power of the Holy Spirit. He demonstrates that he is not just a hallucination, a spirit or a dream, but a real physical man who has really physically been resurrected. He provides joy and gladness. And he gives them in all of this the power to go out proclaiming the forgiveness of sins to lost and dying people. They go from cowering to having the power of heaven given to them. That's not a bad two minutes. Friends, let's be reminded of a couple of things by this mercy that strengthens us in Christ. First, Jesus is greater and more powerful than any government or any force in the world. We are not to fear man. We are not to fear any of the weapons of man, and we are not to fear any of the power that man can wield. Jesus is master and commander over all things. Therefore, be strong and be courageous. Know that the preaching of the gospel will have its effect. The preaching of the gospel will go forward, and it will be effective as Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Be sure that as you go and you speak the gospel to people, that your God stands behind that. This is the whole reason why he has left the church, to be equipped to do the work of the ministry, to proclaim the gospel to lost and dying people, which also means that the work that you do in giving to things like Lottie Moon, which we are still taking up as we support missionaries around the world, that that money is not wasted. You're not wasting your money by giving to that. You are investing your money in the kingdom of God to see men and women come to faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that the power of the Holy Spirit stands behind the church as it does the work it ought to do. Be strengthened in these things. What's more, we are strengthened primarily to do just that, to preach forgiveness to people. The gospel is here to do much more than that. And the forgiveness of sins ought to entail with it lives that are changed and good works that are done. I do not minimize that in the least. But the primary work of the gospel is the proclamation that your sins are forgiven because Jesus Christ has died and paid the penalty that you owed. And he was raised to show that that penalty was paid in full and he is victorious over death. And so we go and we proclaim the gospel to people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language telling them, that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. He was raised for your vindication. His life is your life. His death was your death. And you don't need to die anymore. You can have everlasting life and trust your soul to him and trust your very heart and being to him. And come what may, know that he is good to you. 
We must preach more than that, but we can never preach less. The gospel is for the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, the very manifesto of the church is here. We are empowered by Jesus Christ to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to all people. And nothing can stop it. No government, no power, no force, nor people, no laws. Not even the gates of hell will stand against the proclamation of the gospel by the church. Be strengthened in the mercy of our Lord. Jesus provides strengthening mercy, but, but he also provides sufficient mercy. There was somebody missing from this little soiree. Thomas was gone. All the disciples tell him, dude, you missed it. It was awesome. We were there. We're minding our own business. Boom, Jesus is there. And Thomas is not having it. He said, listen, I know you guys mean well, but he's so emphatic. It's not like I'm going to hold back on my judgment. It's not this sort of rational, low-key thing like "Ah, I would really like to see for myself. He says, I'm never going to believe. And it's not even I'm not going to believe if I see him. He says very clearly, unless I can touch the wounds, there's no chance of me believing. I never will believe. Now, I try to be sympathetic to Thomas. I really do. And there's good reason why. This is an incredible claim. Listen, if, if the disciples had just come back and said, hey, good news, I saw a dog today. Thomas wouldn't need much in the way of proof. Okay, I'm sure you saw a dog. I did. You want to see pictures? No, it's okay. I'm, I'm good. I don't need to see a picture of that. But a man coming back from the dead, that, that requires a fair bit of proof. That requires a, 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 a lot more evidence than simply taking somebody's word for it, doesn't it? The greater the claim, the greater the proof you need. But there's something wrong with what Thomas does here. It's a skepticism that goes beyond the bounds of what he should be skeptical about. These are not just strangers off the street. These are the closest friends he has in life. These are people that he has spent three plus years with, that he has gone through traumatic experiences with, that he has seen amazing and unbelievable things with recounted here in the book of John and in the other Gospels. He has seen miracles upon miracles upon miracles. And they come back and they report to him. And he says, no, I'm good. A report which, by the way, should stand up under the law of Moses where you only need two witnesses and he's got ten. No, I'm good. It is interesting that Jesus, having withheld from Mary the very thing that she desired for her good. She wanted to cling to him. She wanted to hold him. And Jesus said, no. Gives to Thomas the very thing that he withheld from Mary. He lets Thomas touch him. Why? Frankly, Mary seems much the better. She seeks him out. She longs and desires to see him because she loves him. Thomas is obstinate and bullheaded. But there is a lesson in this. I think we often wonder why it is the Lord gives the things that we desire so much to other people. And it could be material things, it could be spiritual things, but we we long for these things and we see them given out in spades to other people, other people which, by the way, we might look at and think, that person just doesn't deserve it. All the while, 
even if we think we do deserve it, keeping those things from us? Could it not be that Jesus knows better what is good for us and what is bad for us? Would it not be that Mary's severe mercy was good for her because otherwise she would never have understood who Jesus truly is as the divine Son of God ascended to the right hand of the Father? In the same way, could it not be that without this, Thomas would never have known? His mercy is sufficient for the ends that he desires us to have. Because honestly, what Mary and Thomas both needed were exactly the same thing. They needed to know not just that Jesus was resurrected, but the kind of man he was. For he wasn't just man. He was also God. Mary needed to know that Jesus was divine, and so she needed to not cling to him that he might go to the Father. But Thomas likewise needed to believe this, but in order to believe it, he needed to touch the living body. They're both given the same belief through the complete opposite command. Thomas, come and touch. Mary, do not touch. Thomas starts to understand, given greater evidence. His exclamation goes far beyond any exclamation that we have in the New Testament of people coming to faith, my Lord and my God. If you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, you get a really interesting twist on this passage because they don't think that Jesus is God. They say he's like God-ish. He's sort of like God in some ways, but he is not God-God. And so the problem is whenever you, you distance yourself from the teaching of the Trinity, you start to run into problems with verses elsewhere. No matter how well you try to manage it, you, you end up with problems. The Trinity is made in such a way from the working of the, the Word of God that it handles all of these passages brilliantly. Jehovah's Witnesses can't. And so they say, well, well Thomas was probably just saying like, OMG. Which is just the strangest thing because these are Jewish people who wouldn't utter the name of God when they were praying rightly. To think that out of his lips would escape a swear word, a cuss, something that, that would be unthinkable for Jewish people, and certainly unthinkable that Jesus would sit there and just accept and kind of go on with business. We watched Christmas movies this week. I was reminded of a Christmas story when Ralphie swears. If you guys know that part. This, is, this would be the exact same thing as a big bleep here from Thomas's lips, unless he meant this the right way. Jesus doesn't come back and rebuke him, but he accepts the very words that he says. And not only does he accept them, he says, ah, now you get it, Thomas. Now you get it. In one, one quick moment, Thomas's skepticism is gone. Beholding the wounds, touching them, he realizes who stands before him. Jesus, in his mercy, is able to overcome all of the stubborn and skepticism that is built into Thomas's heart. And friends, realize that he does this for all people. He can do it for anyone. It's good that we work hard at trying to remove these sort of barriers that skepticism has. How many people do you know say, well, I... I I don't believe in fairy tales. I don't believe in the, the things that you believe in because the resurrections just can't happen. We know they can't happen because they don't happen. That's why we call it a miracle, man. 
It can't happen because it, it never does happen. Again, that miracle thing. It can't happen because science says it can't happen. I'm not sure you understand what science is. So you can, you can take them and you can break down those rational things, but realize at the heart of it, disbelief is a rejection of God. And no amount of arguing is going to get them there. And it's right to use apologetics, and it's right to try and show them that they're being irrational. The reason why they don't want to believe is because they don't like their evil being exposed, as John would say. But never forget that it is the work of Christ to remove it. No matter how well you speak, no matter how wonderful you are at arguing, it is the work of God to remove it. So let us do it all the more, waiting and expecting for Jesus to do that. Jesus' resurrection appearances gives to each one of these groups the very thing they need. John simply needs to see a full but empty grave. Mary needs to know that Jesus is destined for the right hand of God. The disciples need to see power from Jesus. Thomas needs to touch the physical wounds of a living man. I think then a right question might be, why not us? Why is it, if we go out with the gospel, that these sort of appearances, these sort of very clear and evident proofs aren't provided to the rest of the world? Why do we rely upon men and women speaking to other men and women and having the Spirit work in them? Why doesn't Jesus, who is omnipotent, who is clearly capable of doing this kind of thing, just appear to people? After all, we're not just asking people to believe in small things. We're asking for them to have their worlds turned upside down. Ask yourself briefly on that mark about your own life. If we are thinking that the resurrection is such a difficult thing to believe because it makes so many implications for our lives that we must put aside the old way of life, and we must live new again. Let me ask you a question, and be honest with your answer to this. If you woke up tomorrow and somehow God, or man, or spirit, or somehow you were demonstrated without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ was not resurrected from that grave, would your life change? Would it change for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning? Or would your world be thrown upside down? Would your life look drastically different? Or would you get up? Would you go to work? Would you act and behave the same? Would you come home and eat and go to sleep? If Jesus hasn't been raised from the grave, Paul says, friends, you, you are most to be pitied on the earth. If there is no resurrection, he says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The question that needs to be asked for people who do believe, does it actually make a difference in the way you live your life? Would your life look the same if the resurrection didn't happen and you found that out tomorrow? And if it doesn't change, if your life is not drastically different with the resurrection or without the resurrection, then why? Because it ought to. Again, why doesn't Jesus just show up? First, I would say, 
He doesn't have to be there with his physical presence. In Luke 16, we have this interesting parable that Jesus gives about Lazarus and a rich man. Lazarus and the rich man both die. Lazarus, having suffered much in this world, goes to the lap of Abram. The rich man goes to a place of torment. Asking for water and getting none, he finally comes back to Abraham and says to him this, I beg you, Father Abraham, this is the rich man speaking, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convicted if someone should rise from the dead. By Jesus' own admission, showing up and being physically present before people would not be enough. It is not enough. He doesn't have to be there, and it doesn't do what we think it would do. Secondly, frankly, he is there. God shows himself to his people. He is present by his spirit. He's present in his people. Why do people not see him there? We can look outside, as Jesus says in John 3, and we can see the wind blowing through the trees. We can hear it. We can watch as the leaves ruffle and the grass bends over when it's not covered with snow. We know that the wind is there, and when that's there, we look out and we say, oh, there must be wind. Trees just don't do that. Why is it that we can't see how the Spirit moves among the people of God? Is Jesus not there with the changed lives of people? Is he not there to make them different than they were? Jesus is indeed there. He is there amongst his people. We know when the wind blows because we see the effects. Frankly, even if Jesus doesn't show up physically before them, he is there in the effects that he pulls on people's lives. Third, he wishes to leave us a greater blessing. He says it right here. Blessed are those who have seen, who have not seen, and yet have believed. Jesus is unwilling to lessen the blessing that he is going to give to people who are far away and far off. It makes sense that you would not be in the presence of God and trust his word, and that that would be the way in which Christ would save you. After all, the way in which humanity fell was in the presence of God, his visible presence, walking with him daily in the garden and not trusting his word. It makes perfectly good sense then not seeing him and yet trusting his word all the same is the way in which our redemption would be worked out. And finally, we know that he shows himself in his word. John is very clear. Jesus did many other things. I gave you four of them, he says, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. These things were not written to talk to you about John and Peter alone. They were not written so that you would understand Mary's plight. They were not written so you would better be sympathetic to Thomas and to skeptics. They were written for you so that you would see what Jesus has done and trust and believe in the work that has happened. Why ought we to distrust the word that God has given to us? Why ought we distrust the witnesses that God have? Why assume that these people are insane or deluded or misguided or charlatans? Sure, charlatans are present. People do peddle the word of God for their own good. The apostles didn't. The the outcome of them going out into the world was what? 
mistreatment, beatings, hardships, and death. That was what they got. And yet, firm to the end were they that I have seen the risen Lord. So friends, believe in the accounts. Believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the long-awaited, anointed king of Israel and indeed of the world. That he is indeed the sacrifice for our sins. That he has indeed won victory over the grave. That he is indeed our faithful high priest. He is indeed the merciful lamb of God who has died for your sins and he is the righteous lion of Judah who will come with a scepter to rule the nations. Know that, trust in that, and believe in that this day, and you will be saved. For when the Lord returns again, it will not be in mercy, but it will be in justice. For those who have trusted in him, who have shown themselves to be faithful, he will reward them by his grace. For those who have refused to come to him, who have rejected and despised him, who love their evil deeds more than repentance, there will be awful and terrible judgment. So all the more let those who are faithful pray for those who distrust, pray for those who rebel, pray for those who reject, because we know that our Christ is merciful. We know because he has been merciful to these. We know because he has been merciful to us. Let us pray that those who don't believe might see the goodness of our Lord in the preaching and the teaching of the word in the lives of his people, repent and be granted eternal life. Let us pray. Friends, as we pray, Father, we ask that blind men on the side of the road cried out, Son of David, have mercy on us. So, Father, have mercy on us. Our Lord Jesus be merciful to us. We are blind. We are in the dark. We are deaf to your word. We are as dead people, unfeeling, unseeing, unhearing, and never tasting of the good of the Lord. We are helpless without your mercy, our God. So be merciful. Be merciful to your people called by your name. We are sinful. Forgive us. We are broken. Make us whole in you. And use us that multitudes may call upon your name and be saved. We ask these things in Jesus' name for his glory and for our good. Amen. Will you stand and sing with us our concluding hymn?